Don't you feel all right? No, I don't feel all right. None of us feel all right. Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Vance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I have to tell you that one of the things that, you know, a little behind the scenes is we didn't actually get to record this when we first wanted to because I was a little busy. You were a little busy. And because I had a little extra time. I have a lot of new thoughts about this episode, so I'm super excited to get to Miri today. Miri. We are on Miri. Now, you know, Steve, like when I think back to when we were growing up and we were watching Star Trek in syndication every night, so whatever was on, we had to watch it. That meant watching great episodes, good episodes, episodes that were kind of like, nah, that was okay, or maybe a few that were just plain bad. For the longest time, I thought of Miri as one of those, nah, it was okay episodes. And it was because of that, that when we got into VHS and DVD and Blu-ray and the streaming services, which even though I have all the Blu-rays, of course, for the original series and Next Generation, it's so easy to just watch it on Netflix sure. or Amazon or Paramount Plus or whatever. So, but as a result of that, you go back and you watch the episodes that you really like or you love. And you don't go back and you watch the ones that are, nah, that was okay. So I can't even begin to tell you when I actually watched Miri for the for the last time before prepping for this episode. What about you? When was the last time before our prep for Enterprise Incidents that you actually watched Miri on your own? It's the same thing, by the way. It is not one that I went back to. It actually creeped me out as a kid. Much like Charlie X, there were elements of this episode that I, it's not that it was bad. It was just that it made me very uncomfortable. And so I didn't go back to it very much. And I, you know, I rewatched the whole series maybe six years ago was the, that might've been the last time I watched Miri. Certainly I've watched the other ones since then many times, but Miri been a while. Okay. You know, it, it, for me to say that I watched Miri six years ago, I, I think it goes back much, much further than that, wow. because again, it just wasn't one that I, that really stuck at. And I'm glad you brought up Charlie X, my friend, because when I rewatched Miri, that was an episode that really came to mind for a lot of reasons. But the other thing that came to mind when I was rewatching Miri for the first time in years was this is a lot better than I remember it being. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of amazing drama going on. There's a couple of missed opportunities, especially with regards to like another earth. I mean, like I thought this episode when I was a kid was going to go in a completely different direction right. than it did. But uh, but still, as a as a grown up watching it with probably the freshest set of eyes that I've ever watched a Star Trek episode in recent years, I came to admire and appreciate Miri so much more than I did. And I was able to, to look at the parallels and the allegories and the, uh, uh, the sort of the symbolism that this episode actually represents. And it is, I think, a really good episode. It has aged so well. There are just great performances across the board, not just from Shatner and, and DeForest Kelly, but also the guest stars. And especially, I have to say, Grace Lee Whitney. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's I just got to say is weird. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And this right. is a, this is an episode about a pandemic. You know? And a vaccine. 
and a vaccine. Yeah. So yeah. that's that was weird, too. You know, the other thing is, you know, watching epi- these episodes week to week like this again in production order, which is something I definitely have not done, I would say, in decades is so this episode comes so soon after uh, that the other disease episode that we've already covered here on Enterprise Incidents, The Naked Time. And it is also another episode that deals with adolescence, with puberty mm-hmm. and uh, and coming of age and in a completely different way than Charlie X, but still a very effective way. And, and definitely in a way that, like you said, it was a little uh, disturbing in some ways. Now, Rewatching it was also where I go and went, okay, you know, from, from my background as a, as a film reviewer for, for decades, I went, so this episode is basically Star Trek's version of Lord of the Flies yeah. meets I Am Legend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That's exactly what it yeah. is. And that description alone already elevates the episode to something far greater than, than how I how I always remembered it. It's an allegory for the generation gap of the 60s, which was very, very big. It's an allegory, like I said, for puberty and adolescence. It is an allegory for the loss of innocence, the loss of innocence that the 60s truly represented for the entire country. And even moments that shouldn't work, like with the blah, 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 and the bonk, bonk on the head, this episode is so far superior than I ever gave it credit for. And for that reason alone, Steve, I have you to thank. So thank you, buddy. <laughs> You're very welcome. And, and by the way, the you know, I said that the new ideas popped into my mind. You'd mentioned the most important one, which is the generation gap. And we're, I have, I have a lot of notes talking about what, what that is that we're going to get to. Oh, I can't, I cannot wait to get into this, but before we get into it, there was a, was a newcomer to Star Trek that came on right before Miri and this newcomer, this, uh, this new employee, so to speak, no TV historian or TV critic could understate or rather overstate the importance of this person to the future of Star Trek. That person is Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn replaced John D.F. Black and also kind of replaced Gene Roddenberry, who was stepping away from his day-to-day producing responsibilities. Like we mentioned in the last episode, Dagger of the Mind was the last episode to feature Gene Roddenberry's name as producer. From that point forward, it was Gene Kuhn who was the day-to-day producer of Star Trek. And as much as Gene Roddenberry created the show and created a great show, it was Gene Kuhn who made it better. I mean, don't you see the difference between the episodes that Roddenberry produced, those first uh, 10 episodes or 11 episodes, and uh, the episodes that we will be we will be talking about for like the next like three months? The big difference to me is philosophically, mm-hmm. is that the show becomes deeper. Uh, because I love, as I've said many times, Enemy Within and Balance of Terror and Corbamite and Mitt, no, we're not, they're great, great episodes of TV. I don't have any it's not that I'm criticizing any of those. It's just there's a certain depth of ideas that's going to happen and a depth of some character things that's going to happen that I think comes largely from Gene L. Kuhn. 
Uh, absolutely. And one of the things that Gene Kuhn definitely did, and he did it pretty quickly, you're like you'll see, you'll see that from this point forward, especially once we get past like the menagerie, the second half of the first season is where Star Trek really started to hit its stride because that was really where where Gene Kuhn was really like in the thick of it. One of the things that he did was that he solidified the relationship between and the dynamic between Kirk and Spock and McCoy. He made those characters more fully realized and he made that relationship more fully defined. What Gene Kuhn also did was he created Starfleet Command, the United Federation of Planets, Khan and Singh yeah. and the Klingons. Like that was all Gene Kuhn. And Gene Kuhn wrote some of the very best episodes of the original series, like Arena and Space Seed and Devil in the Dark and my favorite episode, which is the second season, Metamorphosis. And for a guy who got his start writing Korean war novels, like Meanwhile, Back at the Front and The Short End of the Stick, and he also wrote movies like the World War II film, The First Fight and The Killers, Hmm. he actually developed two TV shows that you would never know given his work on Star Trek. He helped develop McHale's Navy. Oh. So that show started off as more of a drama. Yeah. And it was actually Gene Kuhn who kind of steered it into more of a comedy and became a big hit. He never took credit for it. But the other show that he definitely did have more of an impact on was The Munsters. Really? Yes. He wanted to take the universal monster, Frankenstein, and give it like a Donner, a Donner Reed background. <laughs> <laughs> So the result was the monsters, and that too was also a very, very big hit. But Gene Kuhn, he just uh, uh, the unsung hero of Star Trek is what we like to call him because he passed away in the in the mid seventies. Uh, he he smoked like a chimney, so he died of lung cancer, and he just never got to uh, reap the rewards of all the people singing right. his praises for these last uh, you know fifty five years. Wow! Wow! Now this episode was written by Adrian Spees, who was a reporter for the New York Mirror and wrote for TV's Studio One and Desilu Playhouse. Mm. The episode was directed by Vincent McAvity, who directed Balance of Terror and the episode we did right before this, Dagger of the Mind. The episode aired on August 27th, 1966, making it the eighth episode to air. It was filmed between August 22nd and August 30th. So it took seven days to film it went one day over schedule. It cost $206,815, bringing it $13,315 over its first season per episode budget of $193,500. It was the 12th episode to film, but they saved money on music, Steve, because no new music was recorded for Miri. It was all, it was all stock music, but the amazing thing is the stock music feels Right at home in Mary, doesn't it? It works. Uh, it's also, there was a whole bunch of interesting things going on in the world at the time this episode was made. For instance, the lunar orbiter that we launched a few episode, episodes ago in our <laughs> timeline now takes the first photograph of the Earth ever seen from the moon. And what's even more interesting is that the next day, the Soviet Union launched their own satellite to go orbit the moon. And it completely failed. It, it, it didn't make it there. Um, on August 24th, the Doors started recording their very first album. 
the first performance of Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead was, was put on the premiere of it at the Edinburgh festival. It is one of my all time favorite plays. And Tom Stoppard is one of the great, great playwrights of all time. On August 25th, the U S house of representatives rejected a request by president Johnson for authority to activate 133,000 military reserves for Vietnam. For Vietnam. That's a lot going on right there. Huh? Yeah. And of course, Scott, for you, Uh the most important event happened on August 29th. Would you like to say what it was? Oh, I'm so happy you are letting me be the one to say what happened on August 29th. Because if there's one thing, really, truly one thing that I love as much as Star Trek, it is the Beatles. And it was on August 29th, 1966, that the Beatles played their last ever paid concert in front of of an audience at San Francisco's Candlestick Park. Of course, they played the rooftop concert on the top of Apple in January of 69, but that was not a concert. It was not paid. I digress. So the last song that they performed at Candlestick Park was Long Tall Sally. Hmm. And 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 legend has it, you know, all the screaming that was going on, it's hard to, to be sure. But when the Beatles took their last bow, Paul, George, and Ringo ran off the stage And John stayed for like a moment and played on his guitar the opening chords to In My Life. And then he took a look around and then he put his guitar down and he ran off the stage. Interesting, huh? That is really interesting. When when did In My Life come out? In My Life came out on Rubber Soul, which came out in the fall of 1965. So the the song had already been out there. But, Mm. of course, that's a very, very deep and personal song. And I just have to say, before they completely shut down Candlestick Park and demolished it, uh, Paul McCartney gave the very last concert there in uh, August of of, uh, 2014. Wow. So, So I went. Because I had to go. I had to go. You know, the site of the last Beatles concert, the site of the last ever concert, and Paul McCartney did it. And as I hoped he would, the last song that Paul performed that night was Long Tall Sally, which was the last song the Beatles performed on August 29th, 1966. Wow. That's just so amazing. You know what? I wonder what's weird because I grew up in San Francisco. My dad was a huge, huge Giants fan. I went to Candlestick Park a ton. Never saw a concert there ever. Ah, oh. yeah. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> well, I think we've I think we've stalled long enough. Would you like to enter the world of Miri? Let's go back to another Earth. Well, that's where we start out. As we come across this planet, there's a distress signal, and everything about this planet, its size, its atmosphere, everything else, even the way it looks, is exactly like Earth. Another Earth. And that is the end of the teaser. It is the yeah. sh- it's got to uh, be the shortest teaser, at least the shortest one we've had so far. It's definitely the weakest teaser we've had so yeah. far. In fact, I even wrote in my notes, like, you know, because I think every episode of Enterprise Incidents we've done so far, we've gone, we go, like, oh, my God, how great was that teaser? Now, this is how you do a teaser. It's so much better than the teasers on the other Star Trek shows. And then, <laughs> and then we get to Miri, and I'm like... Boy, that teaser was kind of weak. That it's was it, weak. really? Just they get they get to Earth, and it's another. He character says another Earth, and that's it. Yeah. But but that's why that's why this teaser for this episode 
gets no indication of where this episode is going to go. And that's why I felt like, you know, like I said at the top of the show, in some ways, this felt like a missed opportunity because I thought this was going to be this big epic, like, oh my God, it's a parallel earth. But then when you realize what the episode is really about, very, very different. But like I said, it is still much more effective than I ever gave it credit for. But I also think that this is a really interesting concept. This is one of the things that Roddenberry, I know it was in his pitch, was this idea that we could discover other planets that were going to be a lot like Earth. And the cool thing about the idea is story-wise and philosophically, it allows us to explore things that are like Earth civilizations or alternate versions of Earth civilizations without actually having to say that these things happened on Earth. And of course, the other thing that's great about it that I'm sure the studio loves is it saves you a lot of money because you're not building all these alien sets and alien races and alien costumes. And no, you just use the back lot. You know? well, well, let's, let's, let's face it. There was a big reason that this was another Earth. And and if you go back and you read the memos that went back and forth between like Gene Roddenberry and, and Bob Justman and you know all, all the executives at Desilu and like they were like, you know, make it a parallel earth so you don't have to create like alien language right. and costumes and a bat, you know, like the, the, let's just use a backlight. And I have to say that Miri was the first episode to be shot on location during the filming of the first wow. proper season. So they redressed exteriors from the Andy Griffith show, which was located. <laughs> yeah, the Andy Griffith show was where they shot Miri. Um, it was a it was located on the 40 acres back lot, which was owned by Desilu Studios. And this is also the same back lot where they shot future Star Trek episodes like Return of the Archons, Errand of Mercy, and City on the Edge of Forever. So so right there. Like when you're watching this episode and you're going in production order and, and you see, oh, this is an exterior. And the other thing that you notice about it is that for the first and only time during her time on Star Trek, Yeoman Rand actually got off the Enterprise. <laughs> I'm just now picturing Andy Griffith in his sheriff's outfit and little Ron Howard walking through the set of Miri, you know, on their way to the fishing pond or something. It just is so, I never knew it was on the Andy Griffith set. That's hilarious. We'll beam down. Alert security. We beam down to the planet to wherever this distress signal is. We got Spock, Kirk, McCoy, Rand, as you say. We got two red guys. There's a beautiful high angle shot as they spread out. Um, I like that Kirk says, oh, it's the early 1900s, and Spock corrects him. I would say, Captain, approximately 1960. Which, of course, sets it today, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, for when you're mm-hmm. watching the show. I like McCoy's joke. The most horrible conglomeration of antique architecture I've ever seen. <laughs> He's taking a dig at the 60s. <laughs> and here's the thing about the atmosphere, I'll say. It's creepy. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the tone of this. The sound design is creepy. We ring, we find a wrecked bicycle. We don't know what's going on. The, the civilization seems to be in disarray. There's no people. There's creepy music. We spin the wheel of the tricycle and it squeaks. And that's just great, great, creepy sound design. This is one of the pluses that I noticed that I really, really noticed and appreciated this time rewatching this episode. The tension the built-up of suspense. Vincent McAvity did such a great job of establishing tension and suspense and mystery. And with the line that you just said about McCoy, like like doing such a sort of a smackdown of of the '60s, here you are basically setting 
this episode in an alternate version of quote unquote today. It's deserted. It's been deserted and run down. Looks like it could have been for centuries. Right. Maybe it's because of a, of a nuclear war. Maybe. Right. And this was during a time when the Cold War was at its peak. Well, this 1960s peak. It would peak again in the 80s. But this was at a time when with everything that was going on in Vietnam and the, you know, the, the generation gap, which is another thing that this episode represents, like it's deserted. And at a time when, you know, the Cold War fears and uh, uh, anxieties were so high, that's why I thought maybe that this episode might go there, but it didn't. <laughs> yeah, it t- I think that would totally be what you expect. And we're in this low, beautiful, beautifully composed, low angle shot, looking up past the tricycle towards McCoy and our group of people. And then we hear mine. Mine. And this guy comes out of nowhere and tackles stuntman McCoy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it is scary. Yep. It's some sort of a mutiny human with some kind of scarring his face looks weird his hands look weird and you know we got we got to pull him off and kirk punches him several punches gets up he punches him again knocks him down and then this scary creature of a man starts to sob it's broke somebody broke it almost like a child exactly the mind of a child it was like you start off that moment being like scared and defensive and you're with Kirk when he smacks him in the face a few times. But then when he turns on the flip of a dime and to pour over the sorrow of the loss of his bike, you feel sorry for him. Yep. That is such an effective shift in tone and it does it in a snap of a finger. And then he has some sort of seizure. And Kirk says, we we want to help you. And, and even during his seizure, he says, liar. That is basically a child calling a grown-up a liar. And that was something that happened a lot in the 60s. That's well, that's see, that's such a great point. It is so much about the generation gap. And then he dies. He's dead. And this is where I went, man, for a doctor, Leonard McCoy does not do a lot of doctoring. I mean, <laughs> imagine if someone, you know, you you had a doctor in our world and someone died well they'd be doing cpr they'd be you know they have their medical kit they'd hit them with some adrenaline they try to get the heart going they put i mean mccoy's just like yeah that's it (laughs) maybe maybe they know more you know in the 23rd century about stuff you can't bring people back from but uh he dies and and mccoy says something about it's metabolic rate it's impossibly high as if it's burning itself up almost as if it aged a century in just the past few minutes that's a that's a big tease right there. And well, speaking of tease, I don't understand why that's not the end of the teaser. Right. That moment was would be way, and it's not. It's like another minute and a half or two minutes down the line. It easily could have been the end of the teaser, and I don't know why they didn't do it there. They're still establishing that this is definitely a different world, and the impending sense of dread has just gone to another level. And then they hear something. Come on. There's like a creaky door and they run to it. They go inside. The music is big. We go into this wrecked room and they hear something. Come on. We mean you no harm. And they open the door and the camera pushes in on Kirk. We don't see what he sees yet. And then we cut to it's just a girl. Just a girl. It's just Miri. And the actress is Kim Darby. She was 18 years old playing a 14-year-old during the filming of this episode. She was 
doing a lot of TV work for shows like Dr. Kildare, Mr. Novak, The Fugitive. And it was after her appearance on Star Trek when she starred with John Wayne in the 1969 classic True Grit. And she's also later in the 70s, she became an Emmy nominee for her performance in the miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man. Wow. And right now, she's scared. Absolutely terrified. And, you know, and it seems like it's really Yeoman Rand who's kind of the most comforting person there. We won't hurt you, sweetheart. No, we're friends. No, So, Scott, you brought up right at the beginning this idea of the generations gap. And this is suddenly, you know, we talked about different frames and different ways of approaching Star Trek. And, you know, we talked about logic and the emotions and we talked about absolute power and illusion. And one of the ones that is coming up is a theme that is throughout the original series, which is that Star Trek is essentially anti-utopian, that there were going to be all these civilizations that basically... Kirk thinks are static and he will break them. This is not that. Absolutely. Although although this is, the story came from probably an attempt to be that because they were trying to do something to make a perfect society that failed. But what it made me think of is that in a lot of ways, the original series in general, you could interpret it as the older generation talking to the younger generation. And I started thinking about it and I went, well, the, the creators of all the show, including Gene Okun and Roddenberry and a bunch of the other guys, they're all the World War II generation. Mm-hmm. Grew up in the Depression, served in the military. Both Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn served in World War II. And these kids, Miri and the other onlys, those are the baby boomers. That's who, that's the generation that these people are. And those are the teenagers and the kids that are watching Star Trek right now. And what hit me is that, is that there is a a theory about American history from Neil Howe and William Strauss that's from their book Generations in a book called The Fourth Turning. And it struck me how well it applies to what's happening here. So I'm going to try to explain it really, really quickly. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the basic, yeah. The basic <laughs> idea is that American history goes in cycles and that the cycle is between 80 and 100 years. And in that cycle, there are four different generation types, two of which are dominant, one that's very practical minded and one that's very idealistic. And I'll let you guess which of the baby boomers and the World War II are practical and which are idealistic. I would say that the baby boomers were practical and the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the younger generation was idealistic. Well, it's the, the, the younger generation is the baby boomers. Oh, OK. okay. Yes. And those okay. are the idealistic ones. The, the, the people that won World War II who built things, they were about building stuff and institutions. That's the World War II generation. They're and the, the practical people, ones. The practical ones. And the people that question everyone, everything, and had all these ideals, like in the free speech movement and the hippie movement and all that, those are the baby boomers. And those two generations dominate. And in fact... There are more presidents of the United States from the World War II generation than any other generation in American history. We almost entire we skip over the next generation and then we get baby boomer presidents. That's wow. how dominant they are. With the exception of Obama, he is the only president from our generation. You know, the thing about about Mary, and, and again, this is, you know, you're bringing up something, uh, another level of this episode that makes it actually stand out 
uh, as being so much better than than people probably gave it credit for these last 55 years. And I hope that everyone listening uh, kind of agrees with us after re-watching Miri to prep for this episode, or maybe you'll go back and re-watch Miri after you hear this version of the podcast and go like, wow, those guys are right. There is a lot going on with Miri. Yeah. And the, some of the very best episodes of Star Trek were episodes that held a mirror up to our society especially back in the 60s, of course, when the epi- when the series was in production. But they did it in a way that was subtle. I mean, sure, in the third season, you have an episode like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which is about as subtle as a sledgehammer. By the uh, way, you said this a couple times in the podcast. I disagree. I think it is more subtle than you think it is, and I cannot wait to get there. We got a ways to go. We got a ways a to go. about that episode. Okay, well, well I, listen, I, I do love that episode. A lot of people kind of don't because maybe it kind of – uh, is is a little too overt, according little to them. A bonk on the head, one might yeah. say. Uh, a little bop bonk on the head for for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. But for the case of, let's say, uh, A Private Little War, or when you get to especially Errand of Mercy, and especially an episode like This Side of Paradise, This Side of Paradise was a very subtle attempt to deconstruct the hippie movement. And they did it subtly, whereas the third season episode, The Way to Eden, was also – like, you know, beating you over the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. But like, I never realized just how subtle, how subtle the allegories and the correlations in Miri are to the times with regards to the the younger generation and the distrust of the older generation. Remember that line in Planet of the Apes? Uh, Don't trust Lucia, anyone over 30. Yes, yes. Lucius Lucius is uh, uh, telling, uh, you know, uh, a tailor, I don't go for fads with the beard. And he goes, never trust anyone over 30. It's such a great moment. But I think that moment, uh, never trust anyone over 30, is right there smack in the middle of Miri. Well, and of course, that's a line from the free speech movement. That's from Jack Weinberger is the guy who first said that. So Heston is quoting that when he says that line in Planet of the Apes. So Spock heads outside. There's a really cool shot. It's a really good concept of we see a hand clear some dirt from a, a, a window and that reveals Spock. And then Spock comes towards it and looks through it. Very, very cool. We're back with Miri and she starts talking about the things you grups did. Burning Yelling, hurting people. We didn't do anything like that. You're not going to hurt? Well, of course not. We're here to help. Miri's got her her uh, her guard way up. She yeah. does not trust the 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 grubs that she calls them. And at that moment, Kirk does what he does best. He turns on the charm. What's your name? Miri. Pretty name for a pretty young woman. And she looks up at him and says, Pretty? And he nods and he says, Very pretty. So she is already like melting, you know, her heart is melting for him. So Vincent McAveedy, uh, when he was talking about this episode, he particularly pointed out how Kim Darby, while giving a great performance, was a bit of a drama queen because <laughs> she would do a take and be so insecure about the take that she gave that she would go running off into the corner and crying. And she had to kind of be reassured that the take that she really gave was, was very, very good. And, and she would come back and, and do the scene. And Kim Darby actually confessed over the years 
that uh, she had a thing for falling in love with her with her male mm. leads. So she had a big crush on William Shatner, and I think it shows. That definitely translates off the screen. It's funny. One of the weird jobs of the director is, some, is you know, you have personalities, and actors are definitely personalities that you have to – uh, deal with. And I love working with actors. It's great. But sometimes you're their therapist, you know? That's oh, sure. You yes. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Steve. <laughs> so by the way, you want to hear what my note that I wrote down when, she, when Kirk changes the tactic and, you know, it says for a pretty young, you know, pretty name for a pretty young woman. You want to know what my note was? What was it? Creep. It's like mm-hmm. watching it today. It just seems so, you know, this is an older, it's, and it's uh, later on, they kind of, it becomes obvious that he is using her attraction for him to get to manipulate her. And in this moment, I just, yeah, I just, this is kind of makes me feel oogie, this 30 year old guy flirting with this 14 year old girl. Well, well, listen, I, I understand that point, especially with today's eyes, Mm -hmm. you know, if you would have mentioned that to me, maybe three years ago, I wouldn't have felt that way, but I certainly see the point in that now. And I also like, when you think about the way he has turned on his charm and, uh, uh, you know, to sort of pull the strings uh, with with women in later episodes like The Conscience of the King or, you know, Cat's Paw, uh, right. where, where he's using his charm to to get information. In this episode, I mean, it, it sort of approaches the line that you're that you're alluding to. But I, I never thought he crossed it. Like in the next episode we're going to talk about, he did cross the line with a with a much younger woman, uh, but she was legal. <laughs> you yeah. know, in this case, she is not legal, and he did not cross the line. He just used his uh, skills to to get yeah. what he needed, and it turns out that he, you know, he needed to do what he did to get more information true. out of her and to to take them where they were going to go. Where they found out more about why everybody disappeared. Uh, outside, uh, Spock and his red guys are trying, they're hearing noises and we're again, it's kind of creepy. And then they hear something fall and then they start to hear, nah, 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 nah. and it gets louder and it gets faster and it's scary. It's scary because you hear it. You don't mm-hmm. see it. Clearly, there are kids. Kids are around, and kids in a desolate, for centuries, place. Like, how did they get here? What are kids doing here? It's it's so mysterious and it's unnerving. It, it's unsettling to hear this innocence at a time of such desolation. And there is a big tradition in horror movies of childlike imagery, childlike music taken to a dissonant place to scare you. That is like a that is a, a horror movie trope. I don't know why childhood and children are scary, but apparently they are. Children, Captain. Lots of them. We couldn't begin to get close to them. They just seem to scurry away. And this is part of where Star Trek uses its technology in ways that are inconsistent because in the man trap a few episodes ago, they went up on the, on the enterprise and their scanners could find every single life form here, man, they can't find those kids. (laughs) It's just, it's just beyond us. We can't find the kids. We hear, uh, that maybe that creature that attacked us died of this disease. And we start trying to find out where are their records and ask Mary, is there a building where the doctors works? And she says, yes, that's a bad place. It's important. And again, Shatner turns on the charm. Please 
He's, he is genuinely, genuinely charming. She asks if he has a name, and he says, yes, it's Jim. I like that name. Good. I like yours, too. I like you. Yeah, this is where I'd like... But, you know, he's doing that to, to get her to... I mean, of like, course I think he that he, Obviously, I, I think in the case of, of let's say, Lenore Caridian, uh, he mm-hmm. was using her, and then he grew to care about her. Uh, in this case, I mean, his motives are completely different. Um and he's he certainly is trying to get the information he needs, but he's also just he just wants to earn her trust. Uh, you know, that's the moment where he sort of goes to, to caress her face and she looks down and he sees the blue splotch on his hand that Kirk is now a grub infected with this disease. And that is the end of Act One. And that's a chilling end. It is definitely one. chilling. You know what? I just I just figured out why it bothers me more. Why? In the case of Conscience of the King or Cat's Paw, the stakes are extremely high. And so to me, flirting with an adult and manipulating, particularly someone who is an enemy, to save your life or the lives of other people, that I is okay. He has not seen the mark on his hand yet. There is no life and death situation. He and he's not just trying to earn her trust. It is clearly flirting with a young girl who is attracted to him. Okay, I I don't see it as he knows it's a young girl. I think you're you're seeing that he crossed the line. I'm saying that he got close to the line, but didn't cross it. And I also I'm seeing I agree with you, you know, when it comes to. Lenore Caridian and and certainly Cat's Ball, you know, the stakes were much, much, much higher. And, you know, Spock did the same thing in the Enterprise incident. He used the Romulan commander, you know, but he also wound up having feelings for her too, even though he would never admit it because he's a Vulcan and Vulcans don't have feelings, even though he's suppressing his emotions. Frankly, I have have feelings for her too. That's a, that's quite a Romulan commander. Yes, it sure Um, is. Yes, it sure is. But, but I I don't think that, that what he did was crossing the line. I, I respect that you do. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think he did. <laughs> um, it, it, act two starts with we found the transmission station. We found some records. We also hear that all of these, all of the Enterprise crew have these blue splotches. Uh, McCoy starting to do research and we're communicating with the Enterprise and we are not communicating. Sulu's not in command. Scotty's not there. We don't see Uhura. Who do we see? You see Mr. Farrell. <laughs> Mr. Farrell. Jim Goodwin, he is what he's like the odd recurring, you know, how, how many episodes is he in? He's in a couple. Uh, he think he, let's see, he's, uh, he's in, uh, he's in Mud's Women. He's in The Enemy Within. Uh, he's definitely in Miri. Uh, I might be missing one. He's not in Charlie X. He's, but so it's, it's, he's an odd one. Like, he's an uh, odd one, but the reason that he was in these episodes hmm. was that he was really good friends with John D.F. Black. Oh. And John, yeah, John D.F. Black, he departed from Star Trek, like, finally, during the episode of Miri. That's when he, like, left the building. And when he left the building, so did Jim Goodwin. And that's why he never appeared on another episode of Star Trek again. It's so he had a, it's good to have that in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got volunteers standing by ready to help you, sir. Under no circumstances do I want anyone to beam down from the ship. We can't take any chances with further contamination. One of the other things we find out is that Spock is apparently immune. It's that green blood of his. Yeah, we get another <laughs> green blood joke. Um, <laughs> Spreads real fast, I know. When you're old, it covers you like anything. And that's why McCoy has it the worst. 
Yeah, and that's what's so great. They never say it, but there is a look from McCoy. They cut to a reaction shot to make, oh, he's the one who's going to die first. Mm, first, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it has something to do with life prolongation, that they were trying to essentially be immortal. So this is a plot of science gone wrong. And the thing that occurred to me is that you're doing some science and it causes a pandemic. There are a lot of people today that believe that the coronavirus is a case of science gone wrong, if not a case of intentional science to create a virus. But there's a lot of conspiracy theories yeah. about that. I, I just think it was because some idiot ate a bat. But uh, regardless, this is another great sign of just how much this episode resonates. I mean, Steve, the episode was written in 1966. And after 21, 20, 2021, when we just went through, you know, 14 months of the worst pandemic the world has seen since 1918. And the world is also much more populated than it was in 1918. And here you're watching an episode where humanity was basically almost wiped off the face of another earth because of a global pandemic. Now, here's the thing. So we've already established how this episode is a metaphor for the generation gap, how it is a metaphor for puberty how it is a metaphor for the loss of innocence. With this, with this revelation that the fate of this other human race came at the expense because they were trying to use viruses to kill other viruses, hence the life prolongation project. That makes this episode, Steve, a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Do not mess with what you don't understand. And That is something, whether it's in the 60s science or 21st century science, is something that science absolutely has to be very, very careful. And I think, I believe they are, but it's still a warning. It's a warning to not play God. What what I hear something that's really interesting. I don't know if this occurred to you, but what they say about how they tried to do this is they tried to use a series of viruses to somehow change human DNA so that they would we would live forever. Well, CRISPR, which is the technology that is was used to create the vaccines that you and I have both had for the coronavirus, uses viruses to change DNA. It is very much very similar. That is the technology where we're starting to be able to edit human DNA is with this technology called CRISPR. Isn't that crazy? That is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I did not know that. And we're we're not even we're not even through the second act of Miri. And (laughs) And I'm already thinking like I'm, I'm just sort of in the back of my mind thinking of like the rest of season one and like, is there another episode that tackles so much of, of contemporary philosophy and science and culture as much as Miri did? Well, what's so weird, though, I can't answer that question. And the reason I can't answer that question is that every episode I've watched, I'm discovering, it's like I'm seeing them for the first time. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be things, I think they're, I I don't, like, I know our next episode is one of your all-time favorites. I think it's going to be seen completely different to me watching this time. Oh, well, I cannot wait to talk to you about that one. We'll get to what that episode is later. (laughs) Um, the, the, The thing they're questioning is like, wait, if Becoming an adult means you get the disease and this and the adults all died 300 years ago. How come these kids haven't grown up to get the disease? And what they realize is that life prolongation thing killed the adults, but worked on the kids. These kids 
might be 300 years old. And those kids, while worked on the kids, what happens when a child goes through puberty? Your body changes, your metabolism metabolism changes, and you become an adult. And when that happens, that is when the kids, now young adults, start to get this disease. And watching the effects of this disease compared to the effects of the disease in the naked time, you know, this is a disease that really like messes with your physical body and also your 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 mind because it is it's starting to drive them a little mad. You see how they're starting to get on each other's nerves and get yep. to each other. And that is something that also was upsetting to me, watching yeah. the crew of the Enterprise like get on each other's nerves and get to each other, especially when it came to to uh, Kirk and McCoy, who we've we've talked about a few times already in in the first ten episodes of Enterprise Incidents. Like there has been a lot of drama between Kirk and McCoy throughout the original series, more drama than most people really really give yeah. credit for. People always go, oh, it's 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 Spock versus McCoy, and then no, a lot of times it's Kirk versus McCoy. Yeah, um, and one of the questions they ask is. Well, why is this Miri girl hanging around with us? And and they say it in a subtle way. There may be other emotions at work in this case, Captain. She likes you, Jim. She's becoming a woman. Which they're basically saying, dude, she's got a crush on you. That is why she's hanging around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the other moment that happens is we're talking about this idea that they age one month for 100 years. And that hits Rand pretty hard. She's this idea. And she says, Eternal childhood filled with play. No responsibilities. It's almost like a dream. I wouldn't examine that dream too closely. It might not turn out to be very pretty. I think that is a key line, is the idea of eternal childhood and Kirk saying it might not turn out to be very pretty. What's so interesting about this is, again, I think this is the older generation talking to the younger generation because the younger generation has utopian ideas. This is where we're going to have the commune and free speech and free expression and everybody gets to be what they're going to be. And the older generation is going, you guys are crazy. That's Mm -hmm. not how the world works. And so I think what this is showing, this is like a cautionary tale what we are seeing and i want to give you my next step in this generations theory and by the way the generations theory i should say uh they make a lot of predictions uh a lot of those predictions are totally wrong some (laughs) of those predictions are chillingly accurate and they kind of cherry pick their data so you know there's a lot of controversy about this theory but part of the theory is that these four different generation types come out of the experiences that they grew up with so the reason that the world war ii generation is so practical is because they grew up in the depression and they fought in world war ii and so they dealt with the world is coming to an end we have to survive and that caused them to learn to work together to trust institutions, to want to build practical things, and to want to create a really safe environment. And the environment they created is the 50s, is this safe, suburban, well-ordered environment. And the baby boomer generation grew up in that environment. And that is why they are the idealists, because they didn't have to face the practical problems that they that the previous generation faced. And so part of what and part of what this cycle is, is that in this 80 year cycle, there are two major events. One is a crisis. 
like a depression or a war or a natural disaster or a famine and the it's a practical crisis and the other is a spiritual awakening like the 60s and they alternate there's a practical crisis 40 50 years later a spiritual awakening and that the and that the baby boom generation comes of age during the spiritual awakening and that is what causes them to be idealists you know i wonder steve given the crisis that we have gone through over the last year a couple months I wonder what the spiritual awakening will be like for the next generation that does not have to, that did not live through this. Well, well, this is why I was going to save this for the end, but here's the years. So if we say the center of the practical crisis that the uh, so-called greatest generation faced, let's say the center is 1941, the beginning when U.S. entered World War II. Mm -hmm. Well, precisely 80 years before that is 1861, the beginning of the Civil War. Civil War. Mm -hmm. If we go to 1863, that's when Abraham Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, 87 Mm -hmm. years earlier, is the Revolutionary War. If you go from 1941 and you add 80 years, the year is 2021. Oh, my effing God. Yep. Holy Toledo. My mind is blown. My mind is blown. Remember I said some of their predictions are chillingly accurate? That is extremely accurate. Wow. (gasps) Yep. You know, it's... It is, it is a like the cycle, like that's, it's right there. It's on the page. Yep. It's right there on the page. And it is a vicious cycle at that. Well, and I, you know how I said there's four different moments. So the two big ones are the crisis, the practical crisis and the spiritual awakening. What happens in the 20 years before the practical crisis, they call the unraveling. It is when people lose trust in institutions. People get into their silos, the institutions get weaker, and that, of course, is part of what leads to the practical crisis. And part of the reason that you have the unraveling is that the idealists, in our case, the baby boomers, have been in charge for a real long time. And idealists don't trust institutions because they grew up in the 60s and they they rebelled against their the previous gener- the, the World War II generation that loved institutions so they rebel against institutions and they have strong ideals and this doesn't mean you could say these are the strong liberal progressive hippie ideals but you could also say this is the strong religious silent majority ideals and those people don't like to compromise and because they don't like to compromise we have the unraveling and the unraveling leads to the crisis that is part of this theory and that is what brings us to 2020 and 2021. Yeah. Unbelievable. Amazing. And, you know, I, I just this this conversation is already making me see things, not just with with this particular Star Trek episode, but but just history, history, this vicious cycle that humanity is like stuck in a in a like epic rut in some ways that they keep the mistakes that the, these crises keep happening, but also back to Star Trek it is also an episode that's making me see that Miri has, has a lot in common with this side of paradise. And it says that, that that was a society that they were trying to establish a utopian colony. And I mean, obviously, you know, the kids were stuck in, in, in a sort of a, a 300 year arrested development because right. they, they, the life prolongation project had worked. 
you know, whereas, you know, the uh, paradise in this side of paradise was uh, influenced by the spores. Right. But in both cases, we're seeing that paradise is not going to work. That's well, not that's not yeah. going to work. Well, that's what and I think in particular this episode, I think this is a cautionary tale. I think it is saying to the younger generation, you are not ready. You've never experienced the horrible things the world has to offer. This is what it would be like, you know, because uh-huh, uh-huh. that generation, you know, they their world looked like this. You know, the depression, destruction throughout Europe in World War II, the new, you know, atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They've seen things like this. The younger generation hasn't. And I think they're saying, look at this. You're not ready. Wow. Wow. This is a it's a cautionary tale on, for a couple of reasons, because of what you just said, you, what you just outlined, but also the cautionary tale to uh, to science to, you know, just don't mess with what you don't know, what, what yep. you don't understand. You know, be careful. Wow. I think we're dealing with children, immensely old perhaps, but nonetheless children. Gotta do something about the others. Difficult. If we can't even get a glimpse of them. You couldn't get close to the other kids? Impossible. And so what does Kirk do? Mary. Puts on that charm again. I'm gonna go someplace with Sure. And who notices how he's kind of being flirtatious with Mary? Rand. Yeah, she's jealous. And this, you know, this is Really, I mean, she made an appearance in one more episode, but it was a blink and you miss it appearance. It was basically a walk-off role in which she got paid for the whole episode. We'll get to that. But this is the last full episode in which Grace Lee Whitney played Yeoman Rand. And I would say it is her best performance in a Star Trek episode, probably as good as Charlie X. Enemy Within, she's good too, That's true. Yeah, you know what? You're right. She was... So much better than sort of history, Star Trek history gave gave her credit for. But I think in this episode in particular, we're seeing we're seeing all the the subtleties of her love for Captain Kirk come to the fore. And the jealousy that she feels for Miri. Imagine if Kirk got back to the Enterprise after letting Edith kill or die and he's all heartbroken. But would what would Gilman Rand have been like in that episode or in, in court martial when his old flame was uh, the yeah. prosecuting attorney? So, you know, for all the reasons that were given about Grace Lee Whitney's departure from the show, there is some merit to the fact that that not having her freed Kirk to do so much more. But this episode in particular, seeing her get jealous and and profess her love for him later, that brings this episode to another level. Uh, you know how I think of Yeoman Rand? I Maybe, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but where you have some experience in your life where you really regret, yeah, I made the wrong choice there. But you also go, if I hadn't made that wrong choice, I wouldn't end up here. And I'm glad that I'm here. There are wrong choices I made, which if I had made the right choice, I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have gone to film school. I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. And I think losing Yeoman Rand is like that. I think that that I particularly watching it this time with you, I've really come to appreciate how interesting that relationship with was Kirk and how much they were building to it. And I do regret that I don't get to see the alternate universe where she stayed on the show. But I can't possibly regret where Star Trek goes. I, I agree with you. I'm grateful for where Star Trek went for went from here, especially because uh, you you had some some 
changes with regards to Roddenberry and uh, sort of stepping aside and John Black leaving, making the way for Gene Kuhn to come and put his stamp all over the show. Uh, you also have the departure of Yeoman Rand, which affected the future of Captain Kirk in the terms yeah. of like his devotion and his attention and his loves. So you can almost see like the Roddenberry years and when I mean the Roddenberry years, I mean the, the the episodes that he actually he actually was the day to day producer for these first eleven episodes. Star Trek is a fundamentally different show up to this point compared to the show it would become over the next season and a half. This is Miri is the dividing line yeah. between the Star Trek, the focus, like how it was more just on Kirk because it was William Shatner's show, to making Kirk and Spock more of a team that they became in the second half of the first season and throughout the second and third season. Miri represents a turning of the page of Star Trek, and it is because of the beginning of the end of the relationship between Kirk and Rant. Absolutely, absolutely. Would you like to go meet some onlys? Let's go meet some onlys. So we see these kids, these dressed in strange outfits and straight. It's just all very bizarre. And we meet the leader of the onlys, which is John, Michael J. Pollard. Mary is with them. Why? Michael J. Pollard. Okay. If, if Kim Darby was 18 years old playing 14, (laughs) Michael J. Pollard was 27 years old playing 14, but he did it. But you know what? He did it really well. And Michael J. Pollard it's such an interesting character, isn't he? He's such an interesting actor. He has such a, a unique look and a, a unique poise. And it's certainly a, he's just so different from so many uh, other actors that we've seen on, certainly on Star Trek. And he was uh, on TV. He was on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. He was in the, the films, uh, 1966's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and he was in 1967's landmark film, Bonnie and Clyde, which was nominated for Best Picture and for which Pollard was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. That's just amazing. I, I, I think, you know, the people casting Star Trek, that was a, I don't know who the, who the casting director was. Joseph D'Agosta. Yeah, Joseph D'Agosta found some good people. Kim Darby yes, and Michael sure Pollard, did. they're great. You know what I love Michael Pollard in is a movie I haven't watched it in forever, but I used to watch it all the time, which is Roxanne. Oh, the yeah, Martin yeah, movie. that's right. He's th- That movie is a lot of fun. Um, and what he comes up with, because he is kind of the leader, is that... They talk to the other groups with these little boxes. Now, if they didn't have those little boxes, they'd be all alone. And then we hear, you know, I'm not a fan of invented dialects, particularly grownups trying to invent dialects that they think this is how kids would talk. And I don't like, I think this is all very silly. All of the Ollie Ollie Oxen free and all of the, it's all weird. I'm like, and and one of the things about it, I think is I think the idea of the show is these kids have, have lived 300 years, but they're just still dumb kids. And it's like, I think they really underestimate children. Yes, we were protected in our youth, but throughout human history, man, kids were out hunting and farming and do, you know, kids worked. I don't believe the way the kids behave in this episode. Okay. On one hand, I agree with you, uh, especially because these kids have been kids for 300, 300 years. 300 years. So, so at some point while their body, their metabolism might say that they're kids, well, they will have grown just by experience. 
So I think the episode actually would have been more effective if they were adults in kids' bodies dealing with their physical bodies turning into adulthood and, and, and seeing the effects of the disease and reacting to that in a, in a grown-up kind of way, even though their bodies were still saying that they were kids. But at the same time, Steve, hearing the, yeah, 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 the oli, oli, oxen free and blah, 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 while that may seem like a, a, a device for yeah. a grown-up to write about, about children, it is also, I would say, a characteristic that is timeless when it comes to kids on TV and on film. Yeah. And whether you're talking about kids a hundred years ago or a hundred years from now, when you hear all the and free and yeah, 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 yeah. You're like, you are one of the many things that kids represent. So I think that using those, sort of tropes in this episode, in some ways it, it limits the episode, but in other ways it gives the episode really a timeless feel mm-hmm. because a hundred years from now, you could watch Miri and hear those sort of exclamations and still think those are kids. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, I think something that came up when we talked about Enemy Within, it's come up in other episodes, Star Trek is not realistic. It's often very, very theatrical. And this is theatrical. These are iconic kids, not realistic kids. But they don't see us. We hide. It's not a game. It's real. They're dangerous. They're grubs. Don't you understand? And what I realized here is, John is becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. He's not up with the silly games anymore. John! And what do they see coming towards them? But Kirk and Miri are coming towards them. And we hear and the music that plays, and again, I think this is telling, is very romantic. And the kids all disappear, and we come into an empty room. And now we get our second creature to attack. Louise. This scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the way the site now, Steve, the way the scene is shot, I think is pretty brilliant because all the kids are hidden. Mm-hmm. He has his phaser one drawn. The camera zooms in on this infected kid whose name is Louise, we find out. And at that moment, the camera is on a wide shot and you see all the kids scream and scramble and duck for cover. Yeah. And it's such an effective moment because like you think this room is like completely deserted and no one's right. around. And then people just, you know, all the kids just come out of the woodwork and they're all screaming their heads off because they're scared of Louise who jumps on Kirk's back. And just like with the other infected kid in the beginning with the bicycle, this kid is really, really strong. And yeah. no matter what Kirk does to get her, literally get her off his back, it doesn't work, but he finally does. He shoots her with his phaser set on stun, but she dies. I don't understand if my phaser wasn't set to kill. But the the body of the infected just was so weak that even a phaser on stun was enough to kill her. Her name was Louise. She's a little bit older than I am when it happened. And then she falls into his arms and he puts his arms around her. I think <laughs> deep down, Miri knows. I think... I think she knows. All right. I don't now, think she, I, don't, I think she's in denial, but I think she knows. Okay. Well, it's funny you should say that, Steve, 
the earlier version of the script, the earliest version of the script, actually came on March 11th, 1966. Adrian Spees did his first story outline. John D. Black did a rewrite on August 10th. So that's like a few months later. And then Gene Kuhn did a rewrite, his revised final draft on August 16th. The reason I bring that up is because, well, I just love talking about the evolution of the story, but also because what you just said, you think that Mary knows? Well, in the earlier versions of this story, Mary did know. Mm. In fact, in fact, the scene in the first act when Mary is talking to Kirk and McCoy and Rand, there is like such a an extended version of exposition in which Mary, on top of everything else, says that she knows that she will she knows that she will get the disease. Mm. And Gene Kuhn, his final rewrite of that story, of the script that John Black rewrote and Adrian Spees wrote with, uh, it was Gene Kuhn's idea to move the moment to the end of the episode when Kirk shows her the mark on her arm. I think that's really smart is that in that position, it becomes a dramatic moment rather than just information. Exactly. I think that's super smart. Um, We're back with our our gang. We find out, you know, Mary's sharpening some pencils for Jim. (laughs) And we find out some some more information. Apparently, we find some notes from some crazy guy right before he died. Only a matter of time before we all go mad. Destroy each other. Till the last of us finally destroys himself. One of the things we find out is that Spock is a carrier. And he can, I love this moment. Whatever happens, I can't go back to the ship. And I do want to go back to the ship, Captain. And Kirk just looks at him and smiles. Yeah, yeah, I like that moment too, because uh, he's like saying like, I want to get off this planet. And it's also one of the signs that no, Spock has emotions. Like mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is a moment between them of emotion. We also hear that they're estimating five to six weeks before Miri gets it. And they've sent up some information to the computer to find out how long they have, and the computer tells them 170 hours. They have seven days. And that brings us to the end of act number two. Act three, we've already used up two of those seven days, and they haven't found what they're looking for until McCoy says, I think I found it. Kirk's shirt is now torn, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, it has to be because yeah. what you know, it, it's got to happen as often as possible. <laughs> you two will have to recreate the thinking. If you can isolate that virus, you'll be able to develop a vaccine. Is that all, Captain? We have five days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, again, I think about we just developed a vi- a vaccine for a virus in record time. It was just under a year, and. McCoy has to do it in five days by himself. You know what? Where was McCoy when we needed him? I know, right? (laughs) Um, And they hear some chanting. Children. And they all run out. The chanting gets faster. They're looking around. Back in the lab. Here comes John. Grabs the communicators. I don't think they would have left all of their communicators sitting there, personally. You You know, like, who would have thought? Who would have thought that someone would come in through an air-conditioned duct? Although maybe they should have figured it out after Kirk and uh, Dr. Helen Noel used the air-conditioning vents to uh, shut down the uh, security fields on Tantalus in Dagger of the Mind, which was the episode they just filmed. Right. But 
you know, they didn't think about it and that cost them because when they when they get back, the communicators are gone. And without the communicators, they can't talk to the ship and figure out if this vaccine is going to work. So to me, I'm like, A, they never look for them. <laughs> you know, they never like go to try to find the communicators. And I also am surprised they don't just hit the find my iPhone button. I think that would be a lot easier to do. Also, the final thing is if the Enterprise doesn't hear from them for four or five days, they probably would have done something, you know, but that's not what's going on. This is, and, and again, shows don't have to be perfect. Scripts are not perfect. And sometimes you have to ignore a thing that would be logical in order to get the drama you want to get. But time is clearly passed. The emotions are running really high. Kirk is pacing. He's obviously angry. And we hear another key piece of information, which is the food on the planet is running out, which means regardless of this disease, all those kids are going to die. They're all going to starve. And Kirk turns to McCoy. And this is one of their most snappy moments at each other. Yeah, for sure. Haven't you found a thing yet? Would you like to take a crack at it? And then Kirk walks away and he walks past Rand, who's holding a beaker Mm-hmm. And he walks into her, bumps into her with so much force that she drops it. And that freaks her out. And she screams, no! 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 And she runs out of the room crying. And Kirk runs after her. And the camera zooms in on Miri. So where Kirk went with Miri in the second act and Rand looked on with jealousy. Now we find Miri looking on as Kirk runs after Rand and Miri is looking on with jealousy. So on top of all of the the dramatic strengths that this episode has already established itself with, we are now in the midst of a love triangle of sorts with Miri showing, showing the jealousy that she has for Kirk going after Rand. I think it was back in The Naked Time where I brought up this idea of story and plot and plot being the external conflicts um, and story being the internal and interpersonal conflicts. And that in really, really good scripts, the story and the plot interact perfectly. And this is a great example. In order to solve this disease, we have to do these things. But part of the obstacles is the relationships between Rand and Kirk and Kirk and Miri and their feelings, mutual feelings about each other. And they they make the plot stronger but with this interaction this next scene is so good and it left such an indelible impression on me this is the one of the ones this might be the scene with Rand that stuck with me the most actually she pulls down her collar and shows the marks on her skin and then she says back on this ship I used to try to get you to look at my legs Captain look at my legs and you see that she's infected on her legs as well And I love the choice, by the way, that she's covering that infection on her legs with her hand. Even then, that shows she's still embarrassed by it. She still is shy in a way. And it's such a tender and revealing and it's a a really profound confession, I think, in a vulnerable, vulnerable way. It is absolutely. The word vulnerable is exactly what sums it up on both of their ends. But this is the most vulnerable moment that we have seen on display from Rand throughout her time on Star Trek. And uh, the, the way that uh, Kirk, 
just sort of embraces her in a comforting way. The intimacy between them, when I think of the relationship between Kirk and Rand, this scene, the vulnerability and the intimacy and the declaration of love that basically Rand is, is professing for her commanding officer, this relationship was taken to the edge. Right. And we never, we never know what was over the other side of the cliff. And that's, that's a shame, but that was the way it had to be. What elevates the moment, I think, is that in the midst of this tender moment of these characters that have been developing over time, we have a third element because we have Miri watching and we're worried about her reactions. And then we add a fourth element. The plot comes back because McCoy has found the virus. The disease, Captain, the one they created 300 years ago. There's a chance. A chance. At least it's a race now. This is where the love triangle is is really at its uh, peak. Kirk is looking at McCoy with a smile of relief, of hope, and Rand Mm. is fixated on Kirk. She is looking at the love of her life, at her savior, at her hero. And Miri, at that moment, that's when she turns on him. It's funny you say that because you want to know, my note that I wrote at that moment was, Rand looks at Kirk with total love. Mm-hmm, That's what mm-hmm. I wrote down. Yeah, I, think I wrote. Yeah, I wrote. Rand looks at Kirk so lovingly, and yeah. her it's her last full episode. Yeah, it clearly struck us both, and we mm-hmm. cut back to John, and we start right in the middle after something has already happened, and he says, "On Minnaby, some fooly, Mary, but they think it would work." And he moves out of frame, revealing now Miri in the center of the circle of the onlys, and she has come up with a plan, essentially, to hurt Kirk and to hurt Rand. And this is happening because Miri is jealous and she is in some ways like scorned because she feels rejected and hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And her loyalty has shifted from Kirk back to her people. Yep. She even refers to Kirk in a snide way as Mr. Lovey Dovey. Lovey Dovey. Bonk, bonk on the head. Bonk, 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 The thought that I had, and this is really the Lord of the Flies moment for me. Yep. I'm glad mm-hmm. you brought that up. Is I suddenly went, wait, have they killed people before? Because the way they're bonk, bonking on the head, I really wonder. This again goes with the loss of innocence theme as well, which is also, uh, you know, obviously a big part of Lord of the Flies is the is yeah. the loss. It's the ultimate loss of innocence story is Lord of the Flies, and whether they killed yet or not, they are going to, and that is disturbing because they're crossing the line. Paradise lost, definitely, and that of course brings us to the end of the act. When we come back, they think they might have found the vaccine. The question is. What's the dosage? That is a very good question. (laughs) Yeah, understatement. (laughs) And Kirk goes to Miri trying to find out where Janice is. Again, we have the plot being advanced simultaneously with the story being advanced. And he even shakes her because Kirk is starting to lose it. Don't you feel all right? No, I don't feel all right. None of us feel all right. Up to this point, Kirk has been charming. He's been nurturing with Miri. But now the disease is getting to him. Uh, He knows that time is running out and it's upsetting to see Kirk lose it. And Shatner just plays his performance 
is right on point throughout this entire episode. I think one of the things that really amazes me about Shatner, and we, we've already said it many times, but I am, but it's his range. It's his ability to play light and silly with Harry Mudd and romantic and flirty and scary and violent as the Dark Kirk and in control and cool as leader. He can do, he really can do it all. William Shatner's acting, his range is fantastic. In really in just the first season alone of the original series, we have seen we see so much of Shatner's range on display. In this episode alone, we see so much range within Shatner. We see him, you know, being the heroic uh, captain standing with his back arched, uh, you know, yeah. square jawed, you know, his head tilted back, you know, looking at the horizon. We see him as the uh, the savior to to Rand and we we see him charming an unknown character to get information and figure out what's going on. We see him become completely desperate and lose his cool. Yeah. All in one episode. You know what? I just realized the thing I didn't understand before about this episode. What's and it? it's, it's really dumb. I can't believe I didn't, I missed it, which is that Kirk is asking where Janice is and Miri is not telling him the whole idea. Her whole plan was they kidnap Janice in order to get Kirk. And then they bonk, bonk Mr. Lovey Dovey on the head. But the reason that she's not telling him her line Jim, I don't want anything to happen to you. is because that moment of jealousy that led her to create this plan, she actually now regrets. I didn't think about it before. She's not telling him where Janice is because he'll get hurt. I've got to find Janice. That's not all, Captain. We've got to find those communicators. We're trying, Mr. Spock. We're trying very That's not hard. Good enough. This could be it. But we can't test it without the ship's computers. And what Spock says at the end is just great. Without them, it could be a beaker full of death. What a dramatic moment. A beaker full of death. Kirk goes to Miri to try to get the communicators, to get Janice. We only have a few hours left. I don't care. Got to care. This to me is a classic generational moment. The older generation cannot get the younger generation to care about the things that it values. That is a key generational moment. And he grabs her. The shot of her is beautiful, by the way. And he says, and again, it's Shatner is so great. Your friends, all the onlys, are going to get the disease. And Miri is in denial. You've seen some of your friends get it. Sometimes it happens. Not sometimes, all the times, Miri. All right, this moment... When he says it's happening to you right now and he shows her her arm and there it is. There's the bruise. There's the disease. And when she reacts, she looks at him in shock and in horror and is horrified. And he just grabs her and holds her and hugs her so, so, so tight. And it is such a dramatic moment that 55 years later is still great. It holds up perfectly the, the most dramatic moment, I think, of the episode. And it happened where it did in Act 4 as, as a dramatic moment, right. not as exposition in Act 1 because Gene Kuhn had the foresight to move it to the end and pack a bigger emotional punch, which yeah. it certainly did. Absolutely. You know what this moment and this whole concept of when you grow, as soon as you become an adult, you get this disease and you die. You know what it made me think of is it made me think of Ali Sheedy's line in The Breakfast Club. When you grow up, 
your heart dies. Who cares? I care. Ooh. Mm. Wow. That's powerful. It has nothing to do with it, but it just, you know, it's one of my favorite movies and it made my brain go there. Oh, I love, I love The Breakfast Club. It's a fantastic <laughs> film. We're in school. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you got the wrong game. A teacher, I told you. Now, what does the teacher say, huh? Study, study, study. Or bump, bump, bad kid. First of all, the note I wrote here is this is clearly written by someone who knows nothing about kids. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. think this is how kids behave. I'm going to give you my last piece of this generation's theory, which okay. is, as I said, the practical generation will build the world that they want to have. And they build a world in the 50s, which is filled with conformity, is that you think about the suburbs. You think about John Mellencamp's little pink houses. You think about Little League and Boy Scouts and garden parties and all, everything is People trying to be the same, traditional values, gender roles are consistent. And the kids who are raised without that trauma, that's why they value individualism. And so they go against conformity, which is what the 60s are, an attack on conformity. This scene is about an attack on conformity. The older generation is trying to tell you what to do, and the younger generation is resisting it. And one of the interesting things is the basic rule that Howe and Strauss put out is that under the practical generation, institutions are strong and individuals are weak. Under when the idealistic generation is in charge, institutions become weak, individuality becomes strong. And you know what I suddenly thought about? What's what that? do we call the kids in this episode? Onlys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Individuals become strong. They become onlys. And I'll tell you something else. And this has nothing to do with this episode. It just occurred to me, but I made it up and I have to tell you what it is. So we have the onlys, individuals, and we have the grups. Now, obviously, grups comes from grownups. But you know what other word it sounds like? Groups. Okay. Onlys and groups. The older generation, the World War II generation, works together. What is the the first World War II generation to become president? What are his most famous lines? John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Institutions, groups, and that is the World War II generation. The onlys are the baby boomers. Wow. Boy, you really dissected this pretty good, and I well, and I – Love the theory. <laughs> I, had, I had five more days to think about the episode. That's what happens. Um, Jan Janice Rand is tied up in the most ridiculous way. It's very, very silly. Um, you know, and, and by the way, you have you have all the the onlys in the room here now. You have all the kids in the room, and those kids are mostly made up of the children of of the actors from the episode for example you have william shatner's kids are in the scene leslie and elizabeth shatner you have gracely whitney's kids uh, jonathan and scott gene roddenberry's kids darlene and dawn roddenberry leonard nimoy refused to bring hmm. his kids because he did not want uh, to uh, put his kids in show business and one of the other kids was phil morris Phil Morris is the son of Greg Morris from Mission Impossible, oh, from Mission Impossible, which was also shooting on the lot at Desilu oh. Studios. Now, Phil Morris, not only was he in this episode, but he was also in a Star Trek movie. He was in Star Trek Three. He played Cadet Foster, who was on the bridge of the Enterprise when they arrived back at Space Dock and says, Sir, I was wondering, 
Are they planning a ceremony when we get in? I mean a reception? A hero's welcome, son. Is that what you like? Well, God knows it should be. This time we've paid for the party with our dearest blood. Wow. So that character of uh, Cadet Foster was Phil Morris, who was one of the onlys in Mary. Wow, that is that is great. You see, it's so funny. I I, I think about I, we you, you and I were talking off on the phone a little while ago about the different kinds of geeks that we are, and that <laughs> is what you bring. Like I'm going to bring weird theories. And you're going to tell me things I never would have known. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um. And shockingly, they see Miri, and then they see that she has brought Jim. You listen, Miri. I did. Why do you think I brought him here? Tell them, Jim. 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 These kids are a rough crowd. And I love watch Michael Pollard in this scene. He conducts them. He is loving what his group is doing. He is their leader. And he is feeding off of the power. And what do we always say that Star Trek has shown about power? How power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. One of my least favorite lines in Star Trek is... No, blah, blah, blah! Yeah, but, but you know what? Kirk sells it. Shatner sells it. He's good. It. He's good. I just hate the line. Shatner sells it. His commitment to this character, his commitment to the type of science fiction series that had never been before attempted on television is a big, big, big reason why Star Trek was so successful and why this series in particular, the original series, has endured. It is not because of the visual effects or because of the amazing production values. It is because of the talent of the actors, because of this Mm -hmm. talented cast, this regular cast, but also the talent of the guest stars in this episode like Michael J. Pollard and Kim Darby. So he Kirk is doing what he does best. He is making a speech and he is making a great speech. And they are starting with the nya, 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 and they're advancing on him. I'm telling you, Scott, this scene always scared me. Yeah, there it was still something does. So upsetting about this. And they're getting closer and closer. And there's an interesting shot, by the way, where it starts obscured by some fabric and then moves in, which I just think is an interesting but odd choice. And he's trying to tell them. You've seen your friends change one by one as they grew up. Did you ever see one of them not change? One by one they changed and got the disease. The disease, like I've got, like Mary has. And then he, he rips his sleeves and you see that his arms are just covered with this disease. And by the way, when the kids like jump on him and attack him, and that he he comes to and he is bleeding. They have drawn blood from him. So like already, whether they killed him or not, the innocence is completely lost. Several things about this. First of all, there are some of the kids, it seemed like he was getting through to them. Like some of them were listening. When he gets hit in the head with that wrench, I think Shatner's reaction is great. And the kids swarming all over him is scary as hell. But what makes it super creepy is that one little girl who is standing up and watching it. It's unnerving to see kids do that to a grown up. And you're right that all the kids are pounding on Kirk and there's the camera zooms in on one, the one little girl who's standing there smiling as it's happening. Yeah. That's Lord of the Flies. And again, I go back to this question, have they killed before? And I actually think they have. 
Mm-hmm. I really do. From watching this scene, they have. And John, John is just watching it and liking it. He's like a psychopath. And then there's this kid behind him who he just tosses really yeah. rough. It's a fairly table. rough yeah. toss of this yeah. kid off the table. I double dare you. And he confronts them with just what you were saying. Look at the blood on my face. And look at your hands. Blood on your hands. It's you hurting, yelling, maybe killing. Just like the grups you remember and the creatures you're afraid of. You're acting like them. And you're going to be just like them. Unless you let me help you. I'm a grup. And I want to help you. And there's a pause and he says, please. This is the generational thing. I'm the adults. I, I survived World War II and the Depression. Listen to me. Mm-hmm. I really feel like that's what's going on. Such a great scene. I mean, you know, say what you want about the no more blah, blah, blah. That scene is terrific. And well, it's the commitment and it's the drama. Totally. And in really smart screenwriting, we cut out before we get the answer. Is that we cut out at the most dramatic moment and we go to Spock, who has a hypo. And the basic discussion is, is this the right dosage? What do we do? It could be fatal. The disease certainly is. How long do we have left? Hours? Minutes? And of course, as you said earlier, he's going to be the first one to go. Bickering is pointless. I'll check on the captain's progress. Here's a thought that occurred to me this time that had never occurred to me before. I suddenly wondered, does Spock know McCoy is going to try it? And that's why he's leaving? Uh, oh, okay. Spock's a smart guy. Well, well no, wait a minute. I actually don't think that he did. Because after McCoy does that and it works, you see Spock like shakes his head like, wow, I can't believe this yeah. guy. He says, yeah, I never will. He says, I never will understand the medical mind. So I don't think that he thought McCoy pro- would do that. I think you're probably right. So, But he leaves and McCoy pulls down his sleeve. Of course, we all know what he's going to do. By the way, Scott, whenever I take a possibly deadly vaccine to cure the disease I'm currently dying of, I sit down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't take yeah, it standing yeah. up. But he doesn't. Um, DeForest Kelly's pain acting is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You feel his pain in that scream when he screams yeah. out for Spock. And the framing of the shot when he hits the ground and we're looking like through the desk. And so the desk creates an artificial, almost a widescreen frame. Uh, It's really, really cool. And seeing Spock come in through the door, it's great. And then here comes Kirk with the kids. And so we know the answer that was withheld before. And then he sees that something is wrong. And I think, by the way, that kid he's carrying, I think that's his daughter. Is that correct? Yes, it is. That's right. And we're in that same beautifully frame shot under the desk, and we look down at McCoy. Look at his face. And they turn his head, and there's the mysterious music, and one by one, the blemishes are fading. Blemishes are fading. By the way, that's really hard to do. The reason it's hard is because we do this thing we've done a lot of times in Star Trek, which is a lockdown camera shot. And so they do a lockdown camera shot, and then they come in and they remove some makeup, and then they shoot it again and remove some makeup and shoot it again. Well, having the hand on the face and having it stay in exactly the same position with the face in exactly the same angle, that's actually really, really hard to do. Um, And if they do, it works really well. And then they're gone. Yeah, that's uh, that's when Spock like shakes his head. He says, I'll never understand the medical mind. But uh, clearly the disease worked. I mean, hopefully they can sort of work out the kinks so it's not it's not so painful. But, uh, you know, McCoy McCoy saved the day and actually Kirk saved the day, too. Is this supposed to be a good thing, Mary? Of course it is. And now we're back on the bridge of the Enterprise. 
And all we hear is that they left the kids. There's like one medical aid, which seems like not a lot for a whole planet, because we don't know how if there are any other kids on this planet. I've already contacted Space Central. They'll send teachers, advisors. And truant officers, I presume. Uh, by the way, Space Central would soon change to Starfleet Command. Right. <laughs> because uh, of Gene Coon. <laughs> Mary, she really loved you, you know. I never get involved with older women, you know. And that is our little joke. And we have reached the end of Miri. And by the way, I never get involved with older women. Well, in real life, Grace Lee Whitney was one year older than William Shatner. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. I never knew that. So that is a great way to end it. And I got to tell you, as much as I, as I felt so much of a deeper appreciation for this episode at the start of this conversation, I have an even deeper appreciation now at the end of this conversation. And in terms of sort of the effect that this had on the people who, some of the people who made it, Kim Darby said, I always fell in love with my leading man. William Shatner was great to work with. He was extremely professional and right on target. And he was completely there for me in each scene. Hmm. Adrian Spees, who wrote the screenplay said, Mary looks good. It had a kind of sincerity to it. I have only good things to say about Star Trek and my experiences on it. It just wasn't very much that I was into science fiction at that point. (laughs) Now, Vincent McAvity, the director, said, a wonderful love story. It had touching performances. Miri was one of my absolute favorites. I thought it was very special. And it is special. And it's Mm -hmm. a, a great way to sum this up because this episode just does so much more than I don't I certainly as a as a lifelong fan and someone who's just read so much about Star Trek I've I've never heard this episode written about or discussed on the level that we talked about it here on Enterprise Incidents and that is what makes I think this podcast series so special well since you read a few quotes can I read you a quote please do So uh, you remember how I said there were some chillingly disturbing predictions from Neil Howe and William Strauss? Sure. This is from their book, The Fourth Turning, talking about the upcoming crisis. Real hardship will beset the land with severe distress that could involve questions of class, race, nation, and empire. Sometime before the year 2025, America will pass through a great gate in history commensurate with the American Revolution, Civil War, and twin emergencies of the Great Depression and World War II. The nation could erupt into insurrection or civil violence, crack up geographically, or succumb to authoritarian rule. Wow. There's a lot in there that is exactly what we have been experiencing. That is uh, chilling. One other thing I'll say about this theory is there is a person who is a firm believer in this theory, who a lot of people have a lot of different feelings about, who ran one of the most surprising uh, political campaigns in history. And that man is Steve Bannon. Oh, man, no way. He studied this theory a lot. Well, that's telling. That is very, listen, that is uh, prophetic. And I think that, wow. This episode hits home on so many levels. It is a metaphor, an allegory, a cautionary tale, a timely and relevant episode for the 60s, for 
the 20s, as in the 21st century 20s. And it is an episode for everyone who has listened to this podcast episode and not seen Miri in a while. Go back and watch it now and let us know what you think of the impact that Miri has on you. So Miri is still not one of my favorite episodes. It is not one that I relish watching because I find it to be very uncomfortable. But watching it this time, just as you said, Scott, I discovered so much more and then discovered more even in this conversation that I think it is both a formative episode for Star Trek. And I think it reveals a lot of the ideas we're going to explore in Star Trek going forward. So that's what we think about Miri. But this episode also sparked a lot of opinions on social media. For instance, Emerson Lynn writes, to me, it tells of the human arrogance using biochemistry to alter nature, much as is happening today. I believe the deeper meaning in this episode is a warning to humankind. John Wagner writes, the underlying 1960s themes here were the youth culture and the generation gap. That's exactly what I was saying. John Francisco says, we are going through a planet-wide inoculation with a brand new technology. That is exactly what killed every adult on that planet. As a grup, John, I'm really hoping that's not what's headed our way. Steve Ginarelli writes, What I like about this episode is that it shows Spock and McCoy working to solve a problem, and it shows their unique skill sets. This is a great, great point. Louisa Decker writes, Viewed through the lens of today's awareness, some of the lines between Kirk and Miri are really cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah, for me too. Now, if you want to join the conversation and maybe get your comments read on the air, the best thing to do is to visit us on social media, either on our Facebook page where you can do a search for Enterprise Incidents, on Twitter, which is Enter Incidents, on Instagram under Enterprise Incidents. And once you've done that, we'd love you to subscribe to the show. It's available in all the usual places, including YouTube, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews. I just want to clarify just how important it is if you are listening to our podcasts on any of the different platforms, if you're listening to the audio version on YouTube, how important it is to go to Apple iTunes and go to the Enterprise Incidents page and leave a review for us. Let us know what you think of Enterprise Incidents on our Apple iTunes page and give us the best review that you can give us, the one that you think we really deserve. Hopefully, hopefully it's a five-star review, but please do rate us and review us because we read those reviews. We take them to heart. You can hit me up on Twitter at MovieMance on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. That's M-A-N-T-Z. And Steve, where can people hit you up? They can hit me up at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And of course, if they are interested in uh, my other podcast, The Cinephiles, and you want to see some episodes about kids, because we've done a bunch of movies about kids, you can check out our episodes on The Breakfast Club, as mentioned here, on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, on The Black Stallion, and a whole bunch of other films. That's The Cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And I know that the next episode, Scott, is one you've been waiting a long time to dig into. Can you tell us what it is? For the next episode, this is, uh, I would say, one of two Star Trek episodes that were not even in my top 10 for many years growing up, but this is one of two episodes that I hail as one of my absolute favorites. 
definitely in my top five. In fact, it may even be number two on my all-time favorite Star wow. Trek episode list. It is The Conscience of the King. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. And if you thought we had a lot to say <laughs> about an episode like Miri, wait till you hear what we have to say on the very next episode of Enterprise Incidents on The Conscience of the King, especially if you love the works of Shakespeare. Until the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.